0: Like it or not, the senior and elderly population is vulnerable to negligence committed by medical professionals, nursing home and assisted living facilities, pharmaceutical and medical device companies, insurance companies, and everyday individuals and businesses. The Injured Senior Podcast is here to help. Steve Heisler is the creator of the National Injured Senior Law Center and has been advocating for seniors' rights for over 20 years. You have questions and Steve Heisler has answers. This is the Injured Senior Podcast. Friends,
1: this is Steve Heisler, attorney and CEO of the National Injured Senior Law Center. I am also the host of this podcast. My friends, elder abuse is an intentional act or failure to act by a caregiver or another person in a relationship involving an expectation of trust that causes or creates a risk of harm to an older adult. Here today to talk to you and educate you about elder abuse is attorney Paul Greenwood. Now, Paul Greenwood was a lawyer in England for 13 years. After relocating to San Diego in 1991, he passed the California bar and joined the DA's office in 1993. For 22 years, Paul headed up the Elder Abuse Prosecution Unit At the San Diego DA's office. In 1999, California Lawyer magazine named Paul as one of their top 20 lawyers of the year in recognition of his pioneering efforts to pursue justice on behalf of senior citizens. Now, Paul has prosecuted over 750 felony cases of both physical, sexual, emotional, and financial elder abuse. He has also prosecuted 10 murder cases, including one death penalty case. In March 2018, Paul retired from the San Diego DA's office to concentrate on sharing lessons learned from his elder abuse prosecutions with a wider audience. In October 2018, he was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by his former office. Paul now spends much of his post retirement time, consulting on elder abuse cases, and providing trainings to law enforcement and adult protective service agencies across the country and internationally. He's also involved as the Criminal Justice Board member of National Adult Protective Services Association. Paul, how are you doing?
2: Good, Steve. Thanks for having me on. This is great.
1: I am honored to have you on today. I want to thank you for all the great things you've done on behalf of seniors and the elderly. I wanted to ask you, how did you go from an attorney in England to a district attorney in San Diego? You know, it's
2: been a, a dream come true in so many ways. As with a lot of people, the ultimate reason was I fell in love. Fell in love with a beautiful gal from San Diego. You know, Steve, I had... You know, I'm 68 now, so I grew up in the 60s. I was uh, raised in Southern England, and I went to watch a film in 1969, which changed my life, called Easy Rider. And no kidding, I watched that film in a cinema, and I said to myself, "America, that sounds like the place I want to visit and get excited about." So I did. I I started traveling. I came over to the U.S. in 1970, fell in love with this great country, kept traveling in my summer vacations. And in the summer of 73, I literally stumbled across a beautiful young gal from San Diego on my travels in San Diego. And five years later, we were married in 1978. And she joined me in England, where I became a lawyer. And then in 1991, 13 years later, because of some serious health problems that my wife had encountered in the UK, we decided to pull the plug on the UK and move back to San Diego with two kids, a 10-year-old daughter and a four-year-old son. And I tell you what, Steve, had anyone told me then what I would be doing for the next 25 years, I would have said, well, that's impossible. But you know what? I'm just so grateful. It's been an an incredible experience. So I came over in 91, took the California bar. A miracle happened. I was able to pass it. And then, as you said uh, to the audience, I joined the DA's office in uh, 1993.
1: Now, that, and that's a great story, by the way, and uh, Peter Fonda and uh, Dennis Hopper were instrumental yes. in bringing you to the, the U.S., so that's a great thing.
2: Oh, yes. Uh, I, yeah,
1: I was born in 61, so I, uh, okay. yeah, I'm a little behind you, but yeah, that's a great movie, one of the great, you know, just an awesome movie. Let me ask you this, so yeah, you joined the DA's office, you know, when you got here, how did you come to specialize in elder abuse prosecution?
2: You know, that was just one of those things. I wasn't looking for it. In fact, I had never even heard of the term elder abuse. You know, I was I've been familiar with child abuse, domestic violence, animal abuse. And after I've been in the office two years, I've been doing regular cases, and suddenly I get the call from the boss, you know, the actual elected DA, and I think, Oh my gosh, who have I upset? So I walk into his office. <laughs> I could tell he was annoyed and angry, but I didn't know what about. And he said, Greenwood, sit down. He said, I've really had a troublesome phone call from our local adult protective services. I said, who are they? He says, I don't know, but I know they're mad. (laughs) And he says, they're telling me that we are ignoring a huge escalating crime called elder abuse. And I said, what is it? He said, I don't know either, but you're going to find out because I've just uh, appointed you as the new Program leader of a brand new program called elder abuse prosecution. And that was it Steve I mean, I walked out of his office Thinking what's just happened and I actually have to admit this thought I would do it only for three years because it didn't sound to me like a very attractive gig and That was reinforced by several of my colleagues in the office who were coming up to me and saying you're doing what? elder abuse who have you upset in the office? So
1: you actually thought you'd been demoted. Yes, that's
2: exactly yeah. right. Yeah, and, and my colleagues reinforced that idea. And I said, you know what? I'm a team player. I'll do it for three years, and then I'll get back into the real hardcore crimes. Well, you know what? After a few months, I started to realize, oh, my goodness, I am wading into an area that is untapped, uncharted territory. And there's real crimes out here that are not being investigated and are not being prosecuted. Yeah, for the next 22 years, I was involved in prosecuting crimes of horrific nature, you know, that were getting on the media, you know, murders, rapes, robberies, you know, you name it. And yet at the time, I just didn't appreciate when I first started how deep this whole problem was.
1: So would you say that, you know, and as is uh, exemplified by the fact that you didn't know anything about elder abuse and your boss didn't know anything about elder abuse. Would you say that back in the 70s that America just, this was like a hidden secret or just something that nobody wanted to talk about? Or why, why was it that nobody knew about it?
2: You know, it's ex- exactly that. It's, it's the same parallel that we had with domestic violence about 40 years ago. You know, nobody wanted to talk about it because it was a, a private family affair, you know. And yet look where we've come with now recognizing domestic violence. Right. So when I started in January of 1996, that's the, the challenge that I faced was how do we now embrace this hidden topic, bring it to the forefront, uh, convince the public that we're serious about prosecuting it and get everybody on board to talk about it and then report it. And and so that was really what I tried to set out to do.
1: That's great. I mean, that obviously there there was a big need in this country for that to happen. So a lot of our listeners are listening in because they want to Know more about elder abuse. So let me ask you this. Can you first tell the listeners what the various forms of elder abuse are? Sure.
2: And, you know, because you're going to have uh, listeners who are coming from various states, you know, what the, the first thing we need to define is that there is no uniform definition of elder abuse because, in fact, some states don't even recognize as a category an older adult that uh, some states go by what we call vulnerable adults or okay. impaired adults which could be any age from 18 through 105 you know California where i've been prosecuting defines an elder as anybody over the age of 65 so when i use the term elder abuse i'm actually also encompassing what i would also call dependent adults people with disabilities people with physical or mental challenges who could be of any age because the same elements uh, of the crime apply to that category as much as it does older adults but looking at from a sort of an embracing viewpoint of what is the crime of elder abuse it covers a whole variety from what i just called just physical abuse slapping hitting pushing which can elevate up to homicides, sexual assaults, which uh, unfortunately there are a lot of primarily, probably in long-term care type settings. You've got mental abuse, and that, that is a very damaging part of the crime too, even though you can't photograph the injuries of mental abuse, they're, they're out there. Right. Neglect is another form of elder abuse. And then you've got the whole area of isolation, abandonment, and then financial exploitation, which is in itself a huge, huge topic.
1: Yeah, and and all those uh, forms, those various forms of elder abuse, we could probably talk for hour upon hour. And I plan on having you on for future episodes so we could delve deeper into each particular topic. But for for this episode, we're going to just going to talk about elder abuse in general. Let me ask you this though: Is there one particular form of elder abuse that you saw as a district attorney, or that you know maybe is more prominent than the other ones? Be
2: greedy and say there's two.
1: Number one, and this kind of emerged
2: within the first 18 months of of prosecution physical abuse by a son. And I want to give you the profile of who he is. Uh, he's typically aged between 35 and 55. And he lives at home with his widowed mother. And he is in every, pretty much every single case I've prosecuted, lazy. He's unemployed. And whenever I would talk to his mother, the victim, I would say to her, your son's 46. He's living at home with you. How come he's not working? And she would always pretty much tell me the same thing. Well, Mr. Greenwood, he tells me he has a medical condition. And then I would interrupt and say, let me guess. He's got a bad back. And she says, how did you know? I said, it comes from sitting on your sofa, sitting uh, eight hours a day playing video games. Now I know I'm being a little sarcastic, but it's true. And these guys, these sons have an addiction. It's either drugs, typically meth, alcohol, typically vodka and or beer or thirdly it's gambling and these sons who are lazy and don't have enough money for themselves how do they get their money to feed their addiction they steal their mother's jewelry and then they pawn it and when she finds out that the jewelry's gone she confronts him and his response is so typical he lashes out at her he punches her he pushes her she breaks a hip, she ends up with a black eye, and ultimately she ends up in the ER, and that's how we discover the crime. So I had countless numbers of those cases, Steve. And then the, the second type is financial exploitation. You know, 65% of all my cases involve some form of financial exploitation. There was often an overlap, because what I just described in the physical abuse profile of the son started with financial exploitation and ended up with a physical confrontation. Other cases of financial exploitation often ended up with just that, where a person takes advantage of the older
1: adult and rip them off. I mean, that is just reprehensible. And I guess there's parallels to domestic violence, because in a domestic violence situation, a lot of times, like... A husband who's beating on a wife, the wife doesn't want to say anything to anybody because she doesn't want to get the husband in trouble or she's afraid it, it could get worse. Did you find the same thing with the the mother whose son you know was abusing her but just didn't want to speak out because you know, again she might have been scared or you know or or ashamed
2: so often uh, I, and I had to kind of Uh, fine tune my conversations and interaction with the victim. Uh, And there were so many times when the victim would tell me this, Mr. Greenwood, I know I called 911, but I never wanted my son to end up in jail. All I wanted was somebody to get some help for him. And we would have this conversation and and sometimes it would get to the point where the victim would look at me and say, no, Mr. Graham, I'm not going to cooperate. I'm not going to help you prosecute my son. And so this is where, from the benefit of learning from domestic violence lessons, sometimes I would have to go out on a limb and say, you know what? I am going to prosecute your son whether you want me to or not, because here's the deal. Your son has an addiction. And the only way we're going to help him get rid of that addiction is if I Court ordered program tells him he has to deal with it because anything short of a court ordered program is not going to work. And so that's how I would approach it. Provided I I could uh, corroborate the evidence through other means, then then we would issue the case with or without the victim's
1: uh, blessing. But sometimes
2: it. it was challenging.
1: Got it. Let's talk about financial abuse. And I'm just taking a guess. But is it mostly the the stealing, which is the financial exploitation, or is it a little more sophisticated?
2: You know, it covers the whole range. Uh, let me go through some of the, sus- the likely suspects who rip off seniors. So you've got the, the closest to home, you've got the family member, right? The son, the... Uh, the grandson, the granddaughter, the nephew, the niece who's down on their luck or who's addicted, they will use any method they can to steal from the elderly person in the home. You've got the paid caregiver coming in from an outside agency. That paid caregiver could be somebody who's already on formal probation for a drugs offense. And uh, the agency has hired them because they didn't do a very good background check. So they come into the house and they see an easy opportunity to, to steal from the vulnerable elderly person. The third type of category is the what I call the rogue tradesperson, the plumber, the electrician, the roofer, who sees a golden opportunity to overcharge, to upsell, to convince the elderly person that the house is about to collapse and they need all these repairs done on the house. So you've got that person. You've then got the internet scammer. You've got the romance scammer who pretends to be somebody who's fallen in love with the elderly widow or divorcee who's gone on to one of these websites and convinces them that they really love them. You've got the sweepstakes scammer, the grandma scam, the IRS scam. You've got all these types of scams that are hitting hard on the older adult. And of course, during these current times of the coronavirus where we're all relying on the internet for our information, these scammers now are really having a heyday, particularly with these stimulus checks coming in to
1: to the homes. Wow. So like as we speak now, you know, it's 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 the coronavirus is such a you know a a tragic situation, but there's I'm sure a lot of scammers that this is like a showtime for them, right? I mean, this is time for them that they can really take advantage of, of vulnerable people like seniors it, it, and elderly.
2: They really do. Uh, and they, as I say, they're using the stimulus check as a, as an opportunity to send emails, to make phone calls, pretending to be from the government, Oh, we need this information before we can send out your money. I mean, people are desperate to get their 1200 bucks. Sure. And if they get what is, sounds like a very formal, Notice or letter or a phone call, they will respond. And you know, it, it is so frustrating. Um, here's another example too. Because we're all shut in the home, we're all relying on the internet. So you get a call as a say a seventy five year old who's been using the internet, and you get a call saying, "Oh, um, this is Microsoft. There's something. There's a virus on your computer. We need to fix it." And then they get remote control of your computer, and then they download all your banking information from that. I mean, this is happening every single day.
1: Well, if we can, you know, shed the light on it, Paul, and uh, at least get the word out. If we can get some exposure, so that people can at least be aware that these things are going on, you know, that's that's a really good thing. Let me ask you this: What are some of the ways? In your opinion, to reduce the risk of becoming a victim of elder abuse?
2: And that is a great question. You know, Steve, even though as a prosecutor, I spent probably 30% of my time not in the courtroom, out there in the community, talking with people and trying to convince people we need to get more proactive because there are certain things we can do to reduce the risk of ourselves becoming victims or of our aging parents becoming victims. And this is why I think that this podcast is totally suitable for adults in their forties and fifties with a parent who is, you know, getting into their early seventies, maybe older. And for example, we need, as I'm now talking to adult sons and daughters. Okay. We need to stay in touch with an aging parent. I can't tell you Steve how many times I would get a call at my office from an angry child of uh, an aging parent. Mr. Greenwood, I hear you prosecute elder financial abuse. I say, yeah, I do. Why? Well, I've just discovered that my 86-year-old mother's been ripped off by her caregiver, and I want you to prosecute to the max. And and, well, how long has this been going on for, I ask. Uh, Well, it sounds like it's been going on for 18 months. So then I say to them, where have you been for the last 18 months? How come you didn't know this before? And then they start giving me every excuse under the sun why they've not been involved in their parents' life. Right. You know, I lost my 96-year-old mother last November. She lived 6,000 miles away. But what I decided to do uh, after learning all this, what I was learning on the job, I said to my mom, you know what, mom, I'm going to make a commitment to you. I'm going to phone you every single day before I go to work. And I did that pretty regularly every day, about nine years. And then after the ninth year, the phone calls diminished because I actually bought her a mini iPad. And so from then on, we FaceTimed with one another every single day.
1: That is so cool.
2: That way, Steve, I could reassure myself that today, my mother is not a victim. Physically, Financially, because I'm engaged in her life. I'm finding out, Mum, what have you been doing today? Who, who's been calling you? You haven't had a call from the IRS, have you, Mum? You know, just reinforcing all those issues that need to be done. So, I, I would say that the best way to reduce the risk is by taking responsibility as an adult child by staying more involved in your parents' life. And if there's been one bonus of this coronavirus outfall is that now, finally, people are realizing the benefits of FaceTime and Zoom and other mediums to stay in touch with your elderly relatives. There are other, one other, I want to just... Yeah, a couple other
1: um, tips, maybe just to kind of uh, educate our listeners.
2: Great. One is this, many older families have to have a Caregiver come in to the home, and I have this conversation with adult children. They send me Instagram. What do I do to 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 try to avoid this caregiver ripping off my parents? Because you tell us that caregivers and some of the sometimes can exploit. This is what you need to do. You need to write a letter to your parents' bank branch. It's got to be a letter, not a phone call, not an email. A letter, good old fashioned letter, and say, "Dear Sir or Madam." I understand that my parents have been with your bank for the last 55 years. They are loyal customers. I want you to be loyal to them. I want you to keep a special eye on my parents' account because things have changed over the last few weeks. My parents now have a caregiver coming into the house. I want you to scrutinize their accounts. I know you're not going to tell me because it's confidential, but if you see a fluctuation in any pattern of their normal financial behavior, I want you to pay special attention to that. And the moment you suspect that somebody is taking advantage of my parents' accounts, I want you to call the local adult protective services and make them aware. And I think if more and more people did that letter, we could stop a lot of financial exploitation of older adults in the bud within the first week of a suspicious withdrawal from an ATM machine.
1: That that is, that is great advice, Paul. Let me ask you this, two things. One, have you actually, after advising people or having advised people about this over the years, did you find that that actually, that the banks stepped up or the financial institutions stepped up and actually, you know, paid attention. That'd be my first question. Second question is I think the listeners recognize that that is going to be a really, really powerful way to stay on top of, you know, keeping uh, their parents safe financially. Do you have a sample, is there somewhere they could go to get like a, a template letter or something like that, that they could, you know, that they could use to send out or is it just something that you know is just a couple sentences and just says hey keep an eye on my parents we have a new caregiver this is his or her name and if anything seems a foul please get in touch with me
2: yeah dealing with your first point because california uh, passed a law several years ago which i was actively involved in too requiring every single bank teller in california is now a mandated reporter of suspected elder financial abuse. That is a powerful weapon to remind the bank in, in the letter. So that the first thing I would suggest to any of your listeners, because it does, I don't have a template, but it doesn't require much. But uh, they, the, your listeners should find out in their state, wherever they reside or where their parents reside, is the financial institution a mandated report of suspected financial error abuse. And it's about 15 states, I believe, that that have made it that. If so, then they need to put that in the letter. If not, just say to the bank, you owe a debt to my parents. Because, you know, Steve, you talk to older people. They are very loyal, aren't they? They've they're been, the, they're been, the best. They're, they're the, the best. best. They've been, they've been with us the same institution, for fifty years, even though that institution has changed hands about ten times itself, mm-hmm. they stay through thick and thin. And it's, that's the, the very it's location.
1: Least. My parents my parents are in their eighties and they've been going to the local shopping center in the yeah. same spot. And it's probably, you know, with banks, you know, they're always they're being acquired and whatever, but I think it's probably been four or five different banks. So yeah. you're exactly right. They're loyal. I think they're more loyal just to the to the location. Or, exactly. Because
2: the, yeah, the, so. it's their roots and that's, that's what right. they, they identify uh, with. It's the same too with people of faith, Steve. There's a lot of older adults who are very loyal to their place of worship. And so I spent a lot of my time targeting clergy in San Diego County. And I'm saying to them, because they're also mandated reporters of elder abuse in, in California. I say, look, I guarantee you that you've got parishioners who sat in the same pew for the last forty years now, if you see that that person is has is no longer attending your services, that should create a red flag because one of the first indicators of elder abuse is that the perpetrator will make sure that the older adult stops doing their regular socializing and so that's something that I have encouraged clergy, make an unannounced visit to your parishioner's home just to find out what's going on. It's things like that, of course, in the current situation, they can't do that. But but when we're hopefully back to doing those regular things, this is something that we can all play a part in. You know, Steve, I've I, I spent, again, a lot of my time saying it's not just about prosecution. It takes the whole community to be part of this. It takes banks, clergy, it takes doctors, nurses, it takes CPAs, it takes elder law attorneys, civil attorneys, anyone out there, mail carriers, meals on wheels. We all need to be on the lookout for any sign that an older person is not showing the same kind of consistency that they showed in the past. If, they, if you see a deterioration, if you see a change in habit, a change in appearance, a change in money uh, factors, that should create a duty in all of us to at least make that call to adult protective services.
1: That, that is excellent information, Paul. And, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, a lot of people don't want to They don't want to be nosy or they don't want to interfere with anyone else's life or maybe they're overreaching or, but with seniors and the elderly, you know, that is something that they need to do. They need to be, as you said, on the lookout and it's going to take a whole communal effort to make sure that our seniors and our elderly are well and are not being exploited, uh, not being abused kind of like if you see something, say something.
2: That's so true. That, that's, that's exactly it. Be, and, and I don't know what it is about our human nature, but you're right. We, we almost feel that, well, it's not my place. I, I don't want to be accused of being a snoop or a snitch. It's not that. And you know what has also really troubled me over the last two or three weeks? Again, I'm talking now in the context of the coronavirus. We're now seeing some horrific news coming out of long-term care facilities. And why is that? That's because for too long, residents of long-term care facilities have not been a priority for government, state governments or federal governments. And to hear that nursing home care workers are having to resort to putting protective gear on out of trash bags because they're not being given the protective equipment is outrageous and I think if something good comes out of this, it's that we need to pay special attention to our most vulnerable seniors who are living so often isolated lives in these long-term care places, and, and we've got to change that.
1: That That's good stuff, and that's uh, those are words to, uh, to remember and words to live by. Paul, I cannot believe that our time is coming uh, very, very close to uh, an end. I've really enjoyed having you on today. I plan on having you on in the future because there's just so much to talk about and so much education that we need to give to this, really, which is uh, it's an epidemic itself, you know. But uh, if, if anyone wants to get in touch with you to learn more about their own situation or their parent's situation or a loved one's situation, what's the best way to get in touch with you?
2: Well, thanks, Steve. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for this medium of podcast. This is terrific. This is the way we need to get the information out. Thanks for reaching out to me. And I really am going to look forward to spending more time discussing these issues with you, breaking them down a bit by bit through the medium of podcast. The best way for folks to to reach out to me would be through my email address, which I think is going to be provided through your website. But it's pgreendda.com at gmail.com. Again, pgreendda at gmail.com.
1: Okay. And uh, do you have anything uh, coming up at all as, as far as elder abuse, such as you know any type of seminar or any type of uh, event coming up?
2: Well, my wings have been clipped, like a lot of people, unfortunately, with the uh, stay-at-home policies force, which are good, uh, which we need to have. Yeah, I, I did have a, a whole schedule of trainings around the country lined up for this year, but hopefully uh, that will change. In the meantime, I'm going to be doing some webinars. Uh, I've got one coming up next week, actually, for statewide prosecutors all over the state of Illinois to help encourage them, prosecute these kinds of cases. And I've been doing some work with AARP and some other folks. So um, as and when I can put it on Twitter, I do have a Twitter account. PGreen DDA is my uh, Twitter handle. So as and when things pop up, I'll be able to uh, distribute that through Twitter.
1: That's awesome. Again, Paul, thanks. You you are spectacular. You are definitely an asset to the law profession and uh, the seniors and elderly individuals in this country, and especially in the state of California, should be very grateful that, uh, that you've been of service. That's it for now, my friends. If you have a story to tell about your experience with elder abuse or want to know if you have a potential case involving elder abuse, please feel free to email me at info at And if you're engaged with the content we discussed on today's episode, please head over to the show notes where you will find a summary of today's episode and any important links we mentioned, including Paul's Twitter and email address. And feel free to reach out to me at any time again at info at com. Thanks again for listening to today's show and be safe.
0: Thanks for listening to the Injured Senior Podcast with Steve H. Heisler. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more or to get help anytime, go to InjuredSeniorHotline.com or call 855-622-6530. We'll see you next time.